turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be in verses 3 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 23. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you." What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Last Wednesday, um, most of you had a unique experience. Your, your phone went off at about 2.18. Anybody remember that? What was it? Yeah, it was a presidential alert. I got to tell you something. I, I, I think that little thing right there is a, an example of how electrified and divisive the atmosphere we're in. So we have this thing called the presidential alert system. Does anybody know why it's there? Does anybody know who came up with the idea? I want to tell you something. A lot of people think that Donald Trump came up with the idea. Uh, it, it, it was derived by FEMA. It was something that was set in, in motion by our previous president a number of years ago, and it is designed to warn us that there is something going on that might be life-threatening. 
okay? Some disaster, some threat, perhaps military, whatever. It's a national alert system that is designed to say, keep your eyes open. Look at what's going on. Turn on the radio. Turn on the TV. Something important is happening. Well, there were a lot of people who misunderstand what I think is an unfortunate naming of the program, the presidential alert system, to think that, that this is something that the president is going to use for his private communication. And people were all over the nation were trying to disable their phones so they wouldn't hear it. And so I'm watching this going, I'm, wait a minute, I, I think there's some misunderstanding of what's going on here. But again, our environment is so politically charged that I, I was watching these clips. There's guys out on the street talking to people about the alert system. And he gets some guy up in the Northeast who, by the grace of God, I think remained anonymous. And, and he said, well, what did you think of this? He said, I didn't listen to it. And, and let me tell you something, if it's from that president, I don't want to hear it. And, and the reporter said, do you understand that this is an alert in case there's a national emergency? He said, I don't care. If it's from him, I don't want to know about it. Absolutely incredible. If it's from him, I don't want to know about it. Do, do we ever approach the Bible that way? Do we ever have preconceptions in our minds about what the Bible says? and decide to take those parts that don't agree with our preconceptions and just refuse to listen to them? Do we ever, I mean, have you ever met one of those people that says, I don't know, you know, that's Paul's opinion, and if it's Paul's opinion, I don't like him, I don't want to hear about it. I mean, it happens. The question of this morning, and we've asked this question before, we're going to take a deep dive into it, is, Will you allow the word to change you, or will you try and change the word? And nowhere is this question more challenging than in the subjects that we covered two weeks ago. Uh, the two questions that we asked the last time uh, I was fortunate to stand in this pulpit. Number one, is God absolutely sovereign? And we kind of went towards the issue of election. And number two, or do human beings have responsibility for their decisions and for their actions? Now, we had a handout. If you weren't here and you didn't get that handout, let me just suggest you pick it up. Um, they're at the Welcome Centers. There's a red stripe on the top of it. To, you can pick it up and take a look at it. We went through a whole lot of scripture. But basically, here's what we found out. You take those two questions... You know, is God absolutely sovereign and are human beings responsible? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. There is a tension in scriptures between sovereign election and human responsibility. And we're not comfortable with it. None of us are. We all want to connect the dots. We all want to make some sense out of it. But we can't. God says both of them are there. And it's not a matter of which one do you like. It's not a matter of which one you're comfortable with. We have to accept both of them. Okay. Well, let's say we can get over that hump. What do we do with it? Well, the first thing we do, and, and we learned this, was we, we recognize that God is transcendent. God is much larger than we, we think he is. 
Sometimes he's beyond our comprehension. There are things we understand about God. There are some facets of God's that are unfathomable. So God is much bigger, much more glorious, much more expansive than anything we can imagine. He is a sovereign creator of all things who sits in authority over everything he created. He created all things, and he sits in authority over everything he created. But at the same time, God is intimately personal with us. He's transcendent beyond our comprehension, but at the same time, he's in us. He's our father. He's our savior. He's our redeemer. He's our counselor. He's our teacher. He's the one who loves us more than anyone can possibly love us. So what does that mean to us? How how do we make these things work, and why is it important? Well, if we understand election and how it impacts our lives, we, we should understand that the way it's presented in Scripture, it's never a burden. It's always a blessing. It's a gift that God gives us. It's an expression of His love. Believers are always chosen, always by His will, and, you know, the, the, the extension of that is we can't mess it up. We can't lose it. We can't countermand what God has already done. But we have free will. How does that work in our lives? Well, it should keep us on our toes. It should keep us alert. Election is never fatalistic, never a burden, but human responsibility, free will, should keep us aware of our posture with God. And while we can't lose our salvation, we can certainly remove ourselves from the blessing and protection and provision of, that God offers us. We see it happen with the Jewish people throughout their history. They're always his people, but sometimes they walk under his protection, sometimes they don't. Human responsibility should make us aware that there's a proper response to a holy and pure God. And that we should never take him for granted, nor should we ever take him too casually. Now, both of these things, if we embrace them, will begin to give us a glimpse of the glory of God. We'll not only see his glory, but we'll see our frailty. We'll see our own weakness and realize that we are totally dependent upon him if anything supernatural or eternal is going to happen in our lives. And if we spin our wheels trying to decide which of these things we're going to embrace and which we're going to, to, to uh, reject, then we're going to miss the point because the point is it's all about the glory of God. It's not about us. It's about him and his glory. So this morning, we're going to, now we spent all that time together two weeks ago, so that you would have a perspective on what Paul is doing in this prayer for the Ephesian church. We're going to look at how these two truths shape Paul's prayers for himself, for the church at Ephesus, and and for us. And in the process, maybe we'll have the opportunity to reshape our own prayers a little bit. So our sermon today is Sovereign, question mark. This is part two of that mini-series within the bigger series, The Prayers of Paul. And once again, we see this pattern of context and uh, content. The context of Paul's prayer this time is verses 3 
through 14. The content is verses 15 through 23. And again, this is, you know, this is our fifth installment. With each prayer, we've seen this context and we've seen the content. And the context is important because here's what we're learning about the context that Paul establishes with each of his prayers. Number one, it sets the stage for the prayer. And it sets the stage by preparing the heart of the one who is praying. Paul turns his eyes towards God, turns, turns his eyes towards what he has to be thankful for, uh, for the people that he's praying for in his own life. Uh, so it prepares Paul's heart for a God-centered prayer. But at the same time, as the people that he's writing these letters to hear this, it prepares their heart to receive a God-centered, Christ-centered prayer. And it prepares both of them for a prayer that is true to the character and nature in God of God and not driven by their desires and their wants, but by driven by who God is and how he functions among us and how we commune with him. So in today's passage, it puts on display what Paul and the Ephesians know about God, in particular in this first section, the context. And this is actually what we call a doxology. Now, that comes from the Greek word doxa, uh, which means glory, but it, it, means, it means the glory of God. Now, let me give you a, a, a technical definition of what a doxology is. This is from Erdman's uh, Theological Encyclopedia. It is a form of words that offers praise to God, especially for his work of creation and redemption. That's a doxology. Praise to God, especially for his work of, of redemption and creation. So in other words, Paul starts out by giving a praise to God for what he's doing and for who he is. It's the beginning of his prayer. And, and then he goes on and makes a number of statements about God. And you, you can find these about how he's working in Paul's life and how he's working in the life of the Ephesians. Paul's setting the stage for the prayer. He's just saying, these are the things that we know. And, and you, can, you can find this, this list of attributes of God, this list of characteristics of his plan of redemption in verses 3 through 14. But he starts out with, God is the Father. So, he means the father of all creation, but he also means, he's referring to this intimate relationship we have with him. He's our father. Uh, we're part of his family. We are his sons and daughters, and, and entitled to all of the rights and privileges that sons and daughters have. And then it says, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, I love this. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And I, we just need to linger here for just a second. Because what Paul is saying is, you lack nothing. Later on, he'll be more clear on this, okay? But you lack nothing. If there are things you desire in your life and you're not getting them, God is saying you don't need them. And if, if we understand that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, then we understand that he has equipped us to do the things that he's called us to do. What has he called us to do? He's called us to live and portray the gospel. And we are equipped for that. So even as I say that, and, and we realize that he assembles us together in bodies just like this one, each of us is equipped with a special part of that capability to go out and portray the gospel. And I know what you're thinking, because right now some of you are thinking, well, you know what, I'm not much of a preacher, I don't have any gift. Maybe you don't. 
Okay? I'm, I'm not much, I, I, I'm not really comfortable talking to people. I, I'm, I don't think I'm going to be much of an evangelist. Maybe you're not gifted in that area. But let me tell you something. When we have the call, the call that is upon the church, the call that is upon each one of us, all of us contribute to it. God doesn't make any pew sitters. God has not designed anybody to walk in and sit in the church on Sunday morning and go home and pretend like it didn't happen. He's put us together as a family. Later on, we're going to find out we are the body of Christ. Each one of us has something to contribute. So when we're out there sharing the gospel, when we're handing out water out there uh, at the festival, somebody's going to bring us water. Some people are going to make cookies. Some people are going to pray. Some people are going to help set up the tent. Some people are going to be encouragers. Some people are going to be teachers to equip the people that are out in the tent. We all work together. We all have a part in it. Some participation is required. God has equipped each one of us uniquely to be a part of the overall ministry. And you know something? He has equipped this particular church uniquely to be a part of the overall ministry of the body of Christ that operates here in Warrington, Virginia, in Faulkner County in Virginia, and in the world. So when we stand up and say, hey, we need help in this area, come forward and help us. You know, maybe we need somebody to move chairs. Maybe we need somebody to just be a quiet presence and a smile to, of encouragement. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now here's the biggest one. He's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. We've got to deal with this. It's right here. When were we chosen? Before anything was created. Well, I'm not too comfortable with that, John. Neither am I. I don't get it. I mean, I'm like, oh, I don't know. Was I created when he thought about me? And was that before the foundation? I, it doesn't make any sense to me. But this is what it says. And even as we deal with that, and it kind of warps our mind a little bit, I, I tell you where my mind goes is before creation, where was God? What room was he in? <laughs> well, there was nothing there in the beginning but God. Yeah, but I want to know where. <laughs> even as we deal with that, we go to the, to the next attribute here. He predestined us for adoption. John, I don't believe in predestination. I'm sorry. It's there twice in the passage, five times in the New Testament at least. He predestined us for adoption. He predestined us to be part of God's family. He predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters to become one with his son. That might be difficult to absorb for some. And you know what? not on the final. Nobody's standing at the gate going, where are you on predestination and human free will? Sorry, we're only letting predestination people in and we're only letting free will in. It's okay wherever you are, but I think, I think Paul puts it here so that we'll think about these things. He wants us to consider them because he's trying to show us how big God is. He blessed us in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. 
And so he tells us about being blessed in Christ, and he tells us what the blessings are. In him, we have redemption. In him, we have forgiveness. What greater blessing can there be than reconciliation back to God? What greater blessing can there be than eternal life because of our belief in him? Human responsibility. He's lavished his grace upon us. I love the word lavish because when a Jew would hear this word, he wouldn't think of a glass that was just kind of overflowing and things dripping off the end. He would be thinking about a deluge. He would be thinking that we are soaked in his grace, that his grace permeates every fiber of our being, an abundant, lavish, luxurious grace. He's lavished his grace upon us and he has made known to us the mystery of his will. And I love that one because I spend a lot of my life trying to figure out what God's will is. Do you ever do that? I don't know what God's will is. Do you want me to live in Columbus or Cleveland? Do you want me to buy the big house or the small house? The red car or the blue car? Marry this person or that person? Do this job or that job? What is God's will? Well, Paul says that God has already revealed his will to us. Yes, it's a mystery, but he's revealed it to us. Well, I love that, but if Paul ended right there, I'd still be stuck because I don't know what his will is. And I run into these situations in life where I'm trying to please him, but I'm not quite sure what to do. Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He says the mystery of his will is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, there's the eternal picture. There's a transcendence of God. Everything that we do, if we are working in his will to express unity and love and mercy to within ourselves as a body and to the world outside there, then we are in his will. You see, then our human will begins to have some effect. It doesn't matter whether or not we buy a red car or a blue car. It doesn't matter whether or not we move to Cleveland or Columbus. What matters is whether or not we have the eternal destiny in mind. What matters is whether or not we intend to please the Father. What matters is whether or not we see the transcendence of the Father, and if we make our decisions with those things in mind, I think God's perfectly fine with whatever you do. His goal is for us to be united in Him, and all things to be united to Him. If we're moving in that direction, then I think God will allow you to exercise your free will. It's a matter of the heart. And as we do that, in him we have an inheritance. What do we inherit? The kingdom of God. We inherit the most fabulous thing that you can possibly imagine. His son and everything that goes along with it. Once again, Paul says, we have been predestined according to his will. Why is this so hard? So that we might be to the praise of his glory. All this happens for the glory of God. How? It happens when we believed in him. Human responsibility. Response to the gospel. And then it says when that happens, we're sealed. Now, this is not just a little bit of glue at the end of the envelope. 
okay? This is a seal. This is permanent. It's, it's similar to the seal that a king would put on a declaration. It can't be broken. It can't be abrogated. It can't be nullified. It can't be turned back. It's permanent. Now, the king's seal is permanent in a different type of way, in a kind of not permanent way. But now we're talking about God's seal <laughs> and all the perfection that comes along with that. So this context, this doxology, includes a lot of what Paul knows about God. And he says that everything happens to the praise of his glory and is intended to unite all things to him. And Paul's knowledge of God and his revelation of the knowledge of God has a profound impact on his prayer, uh, on the content of his prayer. So keeping what he knows about the character and nature of God in mind and what God's plan is and what his will is and what his purposes are, look at what Paul prays. And this pops up in verses 15 through 24. He starts off with, with verse 15 where he says, for this reason. Now he's not talking about what happened in verse 14. He's talking about that whole doxology in 13 through, through 14. He's talking about because of who God is and what he does. You might say that Paul begins his prayer by saying, because God is God and is working in my life and working in your life to bless us and to reveal his glory, and because I have heard about your faith and heard about your love for the saints. Now, what he's saying is, because we know who God is and we know how he functions, and because I have heard your testimony and seen your love. Now, watch what he just did here. Okay, he's saying it's not enough to just say that you're a Christian. There has to be some manifestation of Christianity in your life. There has to be something inside you that displays the love and the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't just say, I'm a Christian. You have to live like one as well. So Paul says, because we know about God and we know about you, here's what I'm going to pray. And this is what he prays. Listen to this. In verse 17, that they, the Ephesians, will be given wisdom and knowledge. Okay, I like that. I want wisdom. I want knowledge. I want to know how to live. I want to know how to conduct myself. I want to know what to do in situations. I want to be smart. Okay. But look at the wisdom and knowledge that he wants them to have. The knowledge of God. It, watch this. It's not the knowledge of their situations. It's not how to get in or out of them. It's not the knowledge of how to be more prosperous. It's not the knowledge of how to be more healthy. It's not the knowledge of how to find ourselves. It is the knowledge of God. If you draw closer to God, the more you know about the character and nature of God, the easier your walk will be. So it's the knowledge of God, not of their individual situations. And he wants them to have that. In verse 18, he, want, he prays that their hearts might be enlightened. Well, I want to be enlightened. I want to be a biblical scholar. I want to be a decent theologian. I want to be a good representative. I want to know. I want to have some street smarts in life. I want to know how to get by. But why does Paul pray this prayer? So that they will know the hope of their calling and know their inheritance. You see, he wants them to have this knowledge so that they will have hope. 
so that they're not lost, so they're not in despair. Paul knows that some of them are struggling. He knows that some of them have difficulty in their families, difficulty in their relationships. Some of them have difficulty in their jobs. Some of them are feeling the despair of everything going against them. Some of them are, are grieving because they've lost loved ones. But Paul wants them to have their hearts enlightened so that they will know the hope of what they're called for and know their inheritance, know the character and nature of the kingdom of God. So that they would see that there's more to what we have right here. Last, uh, last night when we did Dottie's funeral, uh, we talked about her being on the other side. We talked about her being in a place where there's more than just the pain and the grief of this world. Where there is no more pain. There is no more sin. Where every tear is wiped away and all of the hurts are washed away. Paul wants us to have that same hope, to have our eyes set on eternity, not on what's happening around us. We don't ignore what's happening around us, but our eyes are set and our hearts are set on eternity and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the inheritance that we get from him. And then in verse 19, he says that he prays that, that they should know how great God's power is. Well, I want me some of that. I mean, power is a good thing, isn't it? I mean, we have people that will tell us that we have power. We have people that will tell us that if we don't have power, there's something wrong with our faith. What is power? Well, I don't know. For many years, I thought power was control. I thought power was the capability to get what you wanted. And I love Paul. We just see this over and over again. He puts his stuff out there. And if, if he just stopped right there, we'd be arguing all day long about what power was. But Paul, he never does that, does he? He tells us what power is. You want to know the greatness of God's power? You want to know how God's power works? Well, number one, he raised Christ from the dead. Christ was dead, dead. And God raised him up. Now, that's fantastic. God has the power to regenerate. He has the power to resurrect. He has victory over sin and death. But there's even more here. He not only raised them up from the dead, he took them up into heaven and seated them, he seated Christ at his right hand, the position of authority. And he gave him power and authority and dominion over the past, the present, and the future. That blows my mind. I can kind of get the present. I can kind of get the future. But Christ has authority over the past. You see how transcendent God is? You see the gift we've been given in him as we're united to him? God's given him all this authority. And he's made him head of the church, which is his body. We are united with Christ. We're indelibly united to him. We're his body. He's the head. And he's called us into the body. Do you see how the blessings begin to roll here? Now we're talking about some power. God's power. Christ is head of the church. The church is his body. And Paul ends up with this curious phrasing about filled and being filled. Let me just explain it. God fills Christ with his power and presence 
And by virtue of us being his body, we are filled with the power and presence of God as well. Why? So that that power and presence might be made known to all. See, that's why the church is here. Not so that we can individually be empowered, but so that we can demonstrate the presence of God to the entire world. You know what? God had been showing this for over 2,000 years. You know, we saw the plans for the tabernacle. We saw the plans for the temple. We saw the plans for the ark. What happened? When they built the tabernacle, God's glory came down and filled the tabernacle, didn't it? God's glory was revealed in, in, in the ark. And so God's presence was among them. And then when they built the temple, the same thing happened with the first temple. God's glory came in and filled the temple. Okay. Well, those were just precursors. Those were just foreshadows of Jesus Christ. God's glory fills Jesus Christ, and we're one with him. He's the head, we're the body. And it's all there as a testimony to the power and the presence of God among people who live in the world. See, that's our calling. We're here to be portrayers of the gospel. So we see the context of the prayer. That, that, that context centers everything upon God and how he's working in our lives. We see the content of the prayer, a recognition of the glory of God who fills all things, particularly the church, with his presence and his power. There it is. And, and what we, we should see here is perhaps the most effective way to pray, the most effective prayers are about God. They're about God and about his sovereign power, about how he's working in our lives, how he's working in the lives of the people around us, and how he's manifesting his glory and, and the love that he shares with us to all the people around us, and how each of that is, is a way to put him on display and put our trust and our faith in him on display, and people might be drawn unto him and have hope. Maybe those are the most effective prayers. Now, there's nothing wrong, and I've said this before, that doesn't mean we don't pray our prayer requests. Those are good things. God wants us to trust in him. But we need to keep in mind, even as we pray our prayer requests, that the scripture says that God knows what we're going to say before we say it. So we're not, we're not giving God the news. We're not getting him caught up on current events. We're not trying to educate him as to what our needs and our wants are. He already knows these things, but he tells us to go and pray to him uh, so that he can show us his power and his presence. But what would happen? What would happen if we made all of our prayers God-centered, God-glorifying, God-thanking tributes of praise to him? Would that change anything? Is it possible that if we began to pray like that, a God-centered, God-thanking, God-glorifying prayer, is it possible that we might begin to lose some of our worry and anxiety? Is it possible that we would be less concerned about our immediate circumstances and more concerned about what we can learn about God and his character and nature? Could we find that we are less concerned about our hurts and our disappointments and more concerned with what God is doing in our hearts and in the lives of the people close to us? Would we fret less about what may 
or may not happen and put our trust completely in God's hands. Would this change the way you pray? Isn't that the pattern we just saw Paul put in front of us? I mean, that's what he just showed us. And you know what? It's not Paul's opinion. Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this. It's intended for us. Do we adapt it or do we just go back to doing what we did before? Do we forget about all this in this afternoon when we sit in our little groups and go through our prayer requests, go through the same routine that we did before? You know what? It's okay. It's okay. God's not going to condemn us for that. Those are good prayers. But brothers and sisters, there's something deeper available to us. There's something more profound. There's something more transcendent. And the question you have to answer today is, will you allow the Word of God to change you, or will you try to change the Word of God? And as we walk in this, as we appropriate it, we will learn how to live a life that prays without ceasing.